0: August 1993, Siberia, Russia. A group of seven Kazakh hikers, headed up by an expert leader, set off to climb the peaks of the Kamar mountain range. Over a week later, one is found barely clinging to life, and the story she tells is a perplexing one of horror. The mystery of what happened to the hikers on Khamar Daban still endures today. Primary sources for this episode include Medium, DM.ru, Strange Outdoors, Dyatlov slash Daban, and Vladimir Zarov. Hi guys, welcome back to this week's episode of Unknown Passage, a podcast that tells the stories of those who have gone missing or have been murdered abroad. And if you heard me hiccup on that name, then you're going to hear that a lot more because I do not speak Russian as a Language at all, not a first language, second, third, and probably never will. Um, So bear with me on this episode. I've tried my best. Now, I just want to say a couple of welcomes to the Patreon before I get into this week's case and why I'm doing it. Uh, Welcome back to the Patreon, Wendy W, and welcome new patrons, Morgan M and Tara A, and thank you for your contribution to the podcast, Nicole Z. Now, I want to get straight into this week's case, and it will be a two-parter. Part one, will touch on the details of the case. Part two will be theories and what experts think. And I have had an experience putting this together, let me tell you. But first, I want to tell you that this is a Patreon request for Kelly L. Now, this is a Patreon location request, which she was entitled to on her tier, with a bit of a twist. So Kelly asked for a case that is more on the supernatural side, for instance, the Bermuda Triangle or something like that. But I decided she just gave me a couple of examples of something that's supernatural. And so I chose one for you guys that you may know, you may not know, it hasn't been covered a huge amount, um, which you'll be able to tell from the sources when I talk about that. And I actually heard it for the first time, I think, 2020, Um the end of 2020 on the podcast I've talked about before, The Shocking Details, which does really just cases you've just never heard of before. And I put it down on my list because I thought, oh, that's interesting because they said that they were Ukrainians that went missing in Russia. So that's the first hiccup that I've come across because from what I can find, they're actually not. Um, So I chose that for you guys just for something a little bit different. But I didn't use podcasts other than my memory of that one or anything like that as a source or YouTube's because honestly I tried just purely to see how they even pronounced the name of the mountain range of that is the name of this episode and just with all the theatrics and the the noises and the kind of laughing about people's um what is something that has ruined a woman's life um just I'm moving more and more away from true crime as it becomes more of like a joke. And I know a lot of you, a lot of you have, but the shocking details is not like that at all. Um, but I did find quite a lot more than I heard on that. So Patron Kelly is from Sydney. She had a new baby late last year. Congratulations. And she's the one who says my voice is like a baby whisperer for her baby. So he'll be listening to this and hopefully he'll have some ideas about what happened to this group of hikers in this Russian mountain range. So many people know the story of the Dyatlov Pass incident in Russia in the Ural Mountains in the 50s. It's been done to death on podcasts and YouTubes. It's been rehashed And I did not want to do that for this episode because most supernatural themes have a logical answer to them. Even the Bermuda Triangle or weird mythical things, generally you can boil it down to something, you know, logical or biological or whatever in most cases. Um, But until I heard the shocking details cover this, I'd never heard of the Kamar Duban incident as it's known. Now, First off, I've tried so hard to find a pronunciation of this from an actual Russian. All my pronunciation online sources do not have it anywhere. Um, obviously, my sources are text form, so I can't hear how to say it. So I kind of just was watching a few YouTubes and went back to the Shocking Details intro to see how they're saying it. Now, Joe on the Shocking Details says like Khmer Um I'm not entirely sure. Most of them us kind of inferior you know <laughs> English speakers who can't pronounce things like this say Kamadaban. so don't hold me to that please and don't kind of email me after the fact saying this is how you say it or you know whatever because I can't fix the episode after it's done um, so I'm trying my best. Now while similar to the of Pass incident I find this one equally if not more interesting um, for reasons that are a little different to Love. Now, with Love, we did not have any survivors, but in this one, we have a survivor account. So it throws a spanner in the works, if you believe her full recollection of events. It's also a lot more recent than the Diatlov pass incident. This happened decades after in 1993. And it takes us to what is a lot of the year are usually icy frozen tundra of southern, southern Siberia in the very east of Russia near the Mongolian border. Except in summer when for a split second it seems it's an entirely different landscape that's a lot greener and a lot easier to traverse. But unfortunately what turned out to be a good weather forecast for these hikers turned very quickly as I found tends to happen up in this mountain range. Now we've been to Russia before, most recently for the Tale of the Amber Room, but also for the multi-part episodes on Alexei Navalny. Just an update. He's sick with something and he's lost like 20 kilos in a week, um, as of this week. So really good to see the Oscars. They're all applauding that documentary that was made um on him last year. And then they just forget about it. <laughs> just like, well done, cool. But this is entirely different. For more on Russian history in general and war history, the Russian Revolution, all that, and just Russia in general, listen to those episodes because this case won't be doing that. It will be purely dealing with the case at hand and the theories about it. This case was very hard to put together. Info is beyond scarce, especially English language info. Now, the first hiccup that I just want to outline is that almost every source in terms of YouTubers, podcasters, say these people you were Ukrainian, which makes me call into question any of their research. Um, not the shocking details so much because I love those guys, but it just seems that they leapfrog off other people's ideas because it doesn't take much to read a couple of Russian sources which are available in English, which I've used as sources, to know that they were from what is today Kazakhstan, um, which is a totally different country to Ukraine. And I know this because one source wrote extensively about it, talking about how where they were from in Kazakhstan and how in Kazakhstan this got a lot more coverage than it did in Russia, which is not a surprise. You get barely anything out of Russia. Um, so I just want to kind of correct that and say that according to what I can find, they are Kazakh. US sources don't even mention their nationality. Now, only one local newspaper in Russia wrote about this very scarcely after the event and almost everything we know is kind of what we know from police reports and the search, search and rescue reports i um didn't really listen to any episodes like shocking details to influence myself i try not to do that i took it back to the start and really tried to patch it together and I kept coming up against these roadblocks. So you can probably sense my frustration. The best English language source was an article in Medium by a woman called Natasha Mullins in 2021. Granted, it missed a huge amount of really meaningful things, I, I think. Um, and those meaningful things I found in a Russian kind of online news forum called uh, shiminovskadm.ru DM.ru And they've written kind of extensively about this and also compiled a lot of historical accounts of it from old newspapers. And so has the official Dyatlov Pass incident website, which is dyatlovpass.com. They've got a whole page on the Demar, um, the Hema-Dabar incident, which, yes, you just heard me say it two different ways, because it has come to my attention that in Russia, for every name of something, there's... Ten different other names that they call it. So someone say Hayma Daban, some say Shama Daban, some say Kama They're all spelt differently. So I'm trying not to get too hung up on that. So <clears throat> this is 1993. It's after the fall of, you know, the Berlin Wall. Um, the kind of start of a new era in what is Russia, and you know, separate countries forming then. And seven tourists from what is now Kazakhstan set out for what was supposed to be a fun and challenging hiking trip. Seven set out, only one of those returned. And what happened between those two events? Well, we will get there. So to commence this story, it makes sense to introduce you first to a woman called Lyudmila Korovina. There's only a couple of main characters in this story that I can tell you really anything about. We don't get a breakdown of the Seven and what they were into, their favourite food, anything like that. Um, Unfortunately, you know, why they loved hiking. I just don't have that. Um, So Ludmilla was 41 years old at the time of this incident in 1993. Now, as I said, with Russia, them giving them different names, you know, this is often referred to as the Korovina group incident as well. You may see it named that because that was her surname and that was the group that she was leading because she was a hiking expert and leader. So she was Kazakh. um, And Essentially, she came from the same area that the rest of this group came from, uh, which is in the Russian sources and it's now in modern-day Kazakhstan. It's called Petropavlovsk Kazakhsky. Yep. Um, This is close to the Russian border, but it's quite a distance from where they were hiking when they went missing. Google, in fact, tells me that's about a 38-hour drive or a train trip from home to where they set off for this hike. This was common for Ludmilla. She was familiar with this area. She was an avid hiker her whole life. Um, And it's like 2,800 kilometres away. It's basically if you go from where they lived in Kazakhstan and you go due east, almost a straight shot, for 2,800 kilometres, you get to where they set off from the town of Murino uh, for this hike. So, Ludmilla's entire life was hiking um, and she knew the hikes of this area of southern Siberia well. Russia is renowned for, you know, its outdoor lovers and people who are into hiking and, you know, they've got great Olympians and I think we've talked about this kind of in the past. It rings a bell. Um, and people referred to her as a master hiker. She's definitely someone that you'd want leading your group if you were a little bit more inexperienced. But she had hiking students and um she was really close to them they said that she was very she was very challenging in terms of like she would push you to your limits um in terms of when you would go on hikes as part of her group she wasn't exactly like easy breezy and singing like Julie Andrews as they make their way up the mountain I don't think there's photo there's a lot of photos of uh, this group on their trip which I presume no one's ever confirmed but I presume they were taken from the cameras um, recovered with the bodies as well as the survivors cameras as well because it's not in 1993 um, she also has like a hectic six-pack which I'll put up as the profile if you're listening on Spotify she's kind of the main one with the six-pack in the front with like the crop top on um so well, she was very tough on her students they said it was kind of like tough love to get the best out of them which she always did and they all would love her and she kind of saw them as like family almost especially her kind of second in charge guy Sasha her students would say that as a result of hiking with Ludmilla she'd build their confidence um, through her tough love approach uh, which is what I try to do Uh so Ludmilla, I don't know if she was married or anything like that, but she had a grown up daughter, Natalia, who was also a hiking instructor, so she'd pass that down, that love of it down to her daughter. And actually Natalia would be leading a group in the same mountain range at the same time as Ludmilla at the time of this incident, but she walked away unscathed and wasn't she didn't bear witness to it more on that later. So in the summer of nineteen ninety three, the Call of the Wild again beckoned Ludmilla. She had organized a I believe it was probably going to be about maybe 10 days hiking trip, not including travel time to get to this part of Russia. The, no one ever really says, I'd say a week to 10 days, uh, with six of her students to the Kamadeben mountain range. This was going to be a 70 to 80 kilometre or 44 to 50 mile hike up the slopes of a mountain, which I also couldn't find the Pronunciation of anywhere on any of the apps. Um, Mount uh, Tritons, Tritons, I believe it's called. This has a peak of around 2,311 meters, which is around 7,582 feet high. So that's incredibly high keep that in mind. We've talked about altitude sickness and all kinds of things on the Everest episode with Francis Arsentiev. And these are all things to keep in mind as we go, because part two with theories, of course, altitude will come in into play and the effects of altitude on the body, which really can't be understated. So a little bit about the Kamar Deben mountain range. This mountain range is what the name of the case is taken from. It's a huge mountain range that lies in the region of Buryata, Buryatia in Russia. This is far eastern Siberia, um, kind of near the Mongolian border. It has a number of peaks, one of which they had just climbed when this incident would take place. And the highest peak is called Udlinskaya Podkova, I'd be way hotter if I had a Russian, Odolinskaya Podkova. And this peak is 7,861 feet. But a lot of this is like large, flat, open, isolated surfaces. It's kind of very, it's not just up the whole time. It's not like, you know, Everest where there's, you know, very rocky and stuff. Some of them, they say it's just, you know, grass and wind uh, which is another thing to keep in mind, how windy it can get up there as well, um, and kind of like barren surfaces for a period of time. Um, obviously, pictures when you look at this area in winter versus summer, you wouldn't know it was the same place. Obviously, in winter it's like you know, completely Arctic. Um, and in summer it's you know, green rolling hills. The climate of the range varies where you are, so um. Essentially, when they went in August is kind of the second warmest month after July. So in the northern part of the range, you, you it's quite humid and temperate where it's located and it rains quite a lot. And the south is kind of the opposite of that. Now, August, as I said, is, is a warm month. But when you read about people who looked into this case and researched it, Russian journalists, you'll realise that, Whatever the forecast is doesn't really come into play once you're on the mountain. It's kind of like Everest when something like rolls in. It rolls in quickly and you can be hit really hard with rain, snow, even in summer. Um, It's not hot by any stretch, um, kind of this mountain range area. Um, In August, for instance, when this happened, their average high, I looked up, it's around 15 degrees Celsius, which is about 60 Fahrenheit. And the average low overnight is pretty cold, uh, to keep in mind. The average low is around 6 Celsius, which is 44 Fahrenheit. And then in September, you get this sudden sharp drop-off where temperatures on average are like in the minuses. So August to September is a very sharp change. So obviously when you look at photos, summer to winter photos, a very stark difference. And I put a picture in the Patreon, as I do every week, people guess where we're going for the next episode and most thought, you know, I put an icy picture, you know, of this mountain range and people thought Finland, Montana, you know, um, uh, I think a couple, a fair few said Russia. Um, So let's get into the details of the trip leading up to the incident, because I'm sure you're waiting with bated breath for what the incident is. And don't worry, the lead up is totally worth it in a horrible way to put it, but um, you won't really be able to believe what I'm telling you when we get there. So like with all the groups, Lib Miller had prepared this group that would be going on this particular hike really well. And considering it was August and weather was more predictable at that time, she thought it would just be an easier hike than in winter, especially considering her students ranged in age from teenagers to adults. So the group of six was age between 15 and 24. And then you've got Lyudmila, who's 41. Now, Russians often have these, you know, nicknames, shortened versions of their names that don't at all sound in English, like what they are. For instance, Alexander, a lot of them are called Sasha. Um, And I knew quite a lot of these because I used to work with a Macedonian girl whose nickname was not at all like Nadia, her actual name. So the first of the six who was kind of the second in charge almost to Lyudmila was a 23 year old called Alexander Christian. I'm going to call him Sasha for the rest of this because that's the nickname and that's what they refer to him as mostly. Now he, all I know about him other than the photos, he's kind of a pretty, all of these are fit, outdoorsy, young people not like it is now um and he was really good with his hands and he was who they relied on to make fires and things so without Sasha and then secondarily to that in terms of being good with your hands Ludmilla you'd be screwed so keep that in mind um he was on the trip she had known Sasha for a long time I believe she'd probably known him through her daughter and she saw Sasha as almost like a son to her then the other students were uh 24 year old Tatiana Filipenka. she was the oldest of the group other than Ludmila 19 year old uh Denis uh Sh- I'm so sorry guys Shvakin 17 year old Valentina Udachenko who they called Valia but I'm going to call her Valentina for this um 16 year old Victoria uh, Zalesova and 15-year-old Timur Bapanov. He was the youngest. Now, so you've got a few teenagers there. Now, a few people say Valentina, who is a central character, and this is 17. A couple said 18, but I'm going with 17. So the plan was seemingly simple. The group would set off from their final protocol at the base of these mountains on August 2nd, 1993, they would head up a peak in the aforementioned um, mountain range called Ray Translator Peak. They would then descend. And by August 5th, their paths were planned to cross with another hiking group in the area. And this hiking group is the one that was run by Ludmilla's daughter, Natalia. So their itineraries were going to kind of cross them. And this is seemingly how it all started. It seemed to go okay. According to, um, Shimonovskaya, my Russian source, which I'll probably refer to it as, the group arrived by train from Petropavlov's uh, Kazashki in Kazakhstan, which is where they came from. Today, it's like a city of 200,000 or something. The weather was clear, blue skies, not windy. It all seemed kind of perfect, especially considering you've got 15, 16, 17 year olds with you. Um, and the group stayed the night the night before, after this long journey there, in the town of Murino, which is kind of at the base of the mountains before setting off. And everyone was really excited and it was not my cup of tea at all. Um, that and music festivals, I think, are my idea of hell. But not these people, because these are like outdoor, outdoorsy fit Russians who love like eating hard tack and things like that. And it seems that for the first two days, everything went off without a hitch, which is famous last words. They climbed that Ray to Peak and there's photos of that. There's quite a few photos and I'll put them in the Patreon and on the website. It's really interesting to look at them because they look, even though they're in black and white, you get that seven kind of, it doesn't feel 90s. It still feels like it's on its Eastern block. It feels 50s by the rest of the world's standards because they're still coming out of communism you know you you get that when you go to Budapest you know and Krakow it still feels parts of it feel so like kind of eastern block and the way people dress kind of feels like that I've talked to a lot of people about this actually and and this is kind of no exception I would I would honestly if you show me pictures of of the Dyatlov Pass in 1959, that incident with that group and this group, I would say they happened around the same time. However, on August 4th, the day before they were due to cross paths with Natalia's group, because there was actually three hiking groups on the trail at the time. I'll tell you something interesting a little bit later about the third hiking group that I came across that I hadn't seen anywhere else, but it was on a Russian source. So August 4th, the day before they're due to meet with Natalia's group on the route, the weather seemingly changed very quickly, which happens up here. And the group not only experienced heavy rain and rainstorms, but they also, it started to snow um, late on the night of the 4th into the morning of the 5th, which is not what they were expecting. And they were not packed for it. They had sleeping bags and they're very thin sleeping bags, tents. You can tell from their clothing that they weren't fully prepared for this. um, And they were freezing, essentially, which is one of the major things in this story we'll talk about in part two, about hypothermia and the effects and how long that will set in for people. This is a really, really interesting case when I get into very shortly what took place. So everyone was soaked. They spent the night soaked in their tents. Um, essentially on the, on the 4th, as this rainstorm hit, they were all slowed down due to the weight of their heavy bags and their heavy clothes, which were all rain-soaked by this point. There's no way to make a fire because it's, uh, it's been raining. So everyone's soaked all night, which is really bad Um, because I've been watching alone and to have cold, wet clothes all night can be deadly. That's when you have to tap out of that show. Everyone was super exhausted because it's so... It doesn't seem like a lot, you know, a 70-kilometer trek, but it it is when you're talking about inclines and climbing a mountain that has to be traversed, you know. So due to the rain on late on the 4th of August, Ludmilla made the call that they had to set up camp for the night and a lot of people questioned this strange call for an expert why she would do it because she chose this kind of open, exposed area and there are pictures of it and I'll put it in the Patreon and on the website even though just four kilometres away within eyeshot was tree cover, which would have been better to set up camp under. But she chose this exposed area that most experts, my Russian source said, it's just wind, rocks and grass, a bit of grass. Um, And it was kind of Baltic and the winds and the rain are like smashing your tent and you have no way of warming up and then it started to snow so due to the wet conditions they were unable to make a fire that night to eat to cook their food so they just had to eat like you know stuff uncooked and they couldn't warm up or dry their shoes or anything like that but the rain apparently according to our sole survivor who you don't know who that is yet but you will shortly the rain didn't dampen their spirits at all everyone seemed to be having fun um maybe the 15 16 year olds I don't know if Lyd Miller at 41 was (laughs) I'm just saying um so by the following morning which was August 5th they they get up and it has been snowing overnight and Lyudmila makes the call that they're going to descend this peak and they were due to meet up with her daughter's group later on that day and because they'd been making really good time up this mountain range she figured that they would get there on, on time to meet Natalia like they were on track to cross paths with that group. Um, so According to Medium, and I'm not sure if this is true, um, they were able to start a fire that morning because it wasn't raining to cook breakfast and that's the only place that mentions that. And then they were packing up, they packed up their staff and they started to head down in order to meet Natalia's group and head off down this retranslator peak and everything was all good other than the weather and everyone being quite tired and seemingly soaked through. And then late afternoon rolled around and by now they should have met up or crossed paths with Natalia's group further down the peak and they did not. And Natalia waited with her hiking group at the pre-organised meeting spot and her mum and her mum's group did not show. But Natalia wasn't too worried. Things happen when you're hiking and you can get held behind. Someone can get sick. Someone can have a fall you may have, you know, just be running behind for whatever reason. And her mum was an expert in her field. So she wasn't worried. Um, And she was confident in her mum's abilities. And so she and her group continued on, which maybe, maybe not saved them, depending on what you think happened with this case. So it's 1993, there's no mobile phones. And even if there was, there's no service up this way. And back then, before all that, when people travelled, they would say when they would be home and if you didn't hear from them, that was kind of it unless you wanted to contact the hotel, the last hotel you knew they were staying at if you had an itinerary and people would write letters home or, you know, things like that or ring home very occasionally, but obviously these people's families would just be expecting them to come back when they were back they wouldn't be expecting to hear from their kids or their loved ones until they were back so really no one is really raising the alarm for these people because as far as they knew they were still on the hike but august 10th rolls around and luckily this event happens because otherwise um we may not ever have known what happened August 10th 1993 uh, about a week after the group set off and five days um, after they were due to meet up with Natalia's group by this point the weather has cleared up and a hike a kayaking group is meandering down a river that is located in quite a kind of um, it's a very kind of thick woodsy area of this mountain range. In the complete opposite direction of the town that they set off from Murino. It's kind of, if you were trying to return to that town, you've gone the complete other direction. You're walking kind of into the abyss almost towards the Mongolian border. As these kayakers kind of gazed into the tree line on the riverside, what they saw must have spooked them. It was a young looking girl, teenager. She looked dirty. Some say, and I take that with a huge grain of salt, she was caked in dried blood. Now some that nowhere does it say she was covered in blood, which podcasts say, which is why these things get carried away and you know one person says it, then the next person says it, and she talks shocking details like Joe, I love you, but he said she was covered in blood and no one ever said that. Um kind of later on they would say she may have had some dried blood on her which I believe but a couple of them didn't say that at all she just looked dirty I believe it's probably just from scratches and walking through woods and things like that this girl w- looked frightened Um, she was just standing at the river side in in front of the tree line and kind of staring at them And they went ashore and approached her. And it looked like she'd been trying to wash her hair in the river, which actually later on you find out that she was. Like my Russian source says that she decided that if she was going to die, she wanted to wash her hair beforehand with just river water, apparently. So they went ashore and they approached her. And this girl was barely able to form a complete sentence. Instead, she was just hysterical. Kind of reminds me of the opening of Texas Chainsaw Massacre where they pick up the hitchhiker and she's just mute and then she starts screaming, you know, just what they think is gibberish about how they're going to kill all of you, that kind of thing. I thought of a lot of horror movies when I was putting this together. So when they calmed her down enough to get basic words out of her, she told this group who would always think about her for years after, and if they'd be tracked down, they would do interviews and say, you know, how sorry they felt for her and stuff. This girl said who she was, and that was Valentina Udachenko, who's the 17-year-old from Ludmilla's hiking group. They couldn't get much sense out of her besides that she was hiking with a group, and she believed that they were all dead up on um, the peaks of Mount Tritris. Um, as they were descending five days before and then she'd been walking through the wilderness for five days and I believe that's why she was cut up. So the hi- kayakers took her to the nearest police station, which probably wasn't easy considering how isolated this is. For years and even till today, Valentina's never done an interview or anything. Everything we know is purely based off she spoke to one journalist after the event and, and the initial police report that she gave. And I don't blame her based on what she saw and how journalists are vultures and twist what you say. And the fact that she was a teenage girl who witnessed such a scary thing. And I I firmly believe she witnessed what she said she saw um, for the most part. I never would speak to anyone either. In fact, I'd be in the corner of a room shaking with a nervous tick in my face, holding like a shotgun, waiting for someone to come in the door and get to me. I'd be so scared for the rest of my life. And today, coming up on the 30th anniversary, the jury is still out on what the hell happened. What follows is Valentina's recollection of events of that August 5th, 1993. All we have is based on her. She is the sole survivor. So everything she says and every amount of speculation and theorising, which is all there is in this case, is purely from what she told police happened after it happened, distress and trauma alter small details or even large details, yes. So that is another thing to keep in mind. But I have to presume because she saw something so traumatic and she spoke so soon after it to the police, even just a few days, I believe that what she saw was seed in her mind, you know, pretty vividly. Now I've cross-referenced this with all of my sources and kind of put what I believe to be true and not just kind of tacked on, um, by a YouTuber or something to give you the best idea of, of what happened. So Valentina told police that the morning of August 5th, when they woke up and it was snowing lightly, um, and they'd been through this heavy rainstorm and they were still all wet from the night before, um, after they had something for breakfast, around 11am, the group, under the directions of Ludmila, continued their descent of the mountain, fully intending to be on time to meet up with Natalia's group. However, mere minutes into their descent, weirdness quickly ensued, and that's the only way to put it. The first thing that happened was they were walking in like a single file line down the mountain, all their packs on them, all the heavy stuff, plus it's all soaked with rain from the day before. And Sasha, who's the right-hand man of Ludmila, who's 23, and he's the handy guy who can set up the tents and do all the heavy lifting and pick firewood and set fires and stuff, he was bringing up the rear of the group. And then they heard him screaming at the rear of the group. And when the group turned around to see what was going on, they saw Sasha. And according to Valentina's account he was bleeding from his eyes and ears and he was foaming at the mouth he was also convulsing like he was having a seizure which ties in with foaming at the mouth and sometimes with bleeding and he fell to the ground and then he just immediately stopped moving seemed like he was dead almost instantly Ludmila ran back to give him assistance. She saw him like a son. Um and she told the group continue on continue on um I'll stay I'll stay with him and I'll get help but continue on try to get some help and meet up with Natalia's group. And the group turned to continue on and do as they were told by their their leader when suddenly just probably 10 20 meters away they heard Ludmila screaming as well, back with Sasha. So they ran back and they find Ludmila in the same way as Sasha. They according to Valentina, and I'll always say this because no one else can speak for their experiences because none of them survived. Uh, according to Valentina, Ludmila's eyes and nose were pouring blood um, and she was also frothing at the mouth. And then she started convulsing and she collapsed on top of Sasha, who she was rendering assistance to. Now, by this point, I would be like frozen in absolute. I don't even know how I'd react. It's like a scene out of, it's literally like this whole thing is like a scene out of Dawn of the Dead. Then the oldest of the group, 24-year-old Tatiana, who had run to render assistance to Ludmila. She immediately fell. And according to Valentina, she was grabbing at her throat and gasping for air like she couldn't get air in, but she wasn't bleeding or anything or foaming at the mouth. And then what's terrifying is that Valentina said... Tatiana fell to the ground and there was it's very rocky and she she crawled over to a nearby rock and she started smashing her head into it over and over again like something out of a zombie movie and then she went limp and she seemed to be dead. By this point there is four of them left um, and the teenagers Victoria and Timur who were 16 and 15 respectively they were both kind of like frozen in shock and my Russian sources say that Valentina was really kind of feisty and ballsy and she'd grown up in a village in Kazakhstan and she was really outdoorsy and fit and stuff and that's probably what helped her but she was trying to grab the hands of the two teenagers to drag them further down the mountain away from whatever was happening and they seemed almost like frozen in shock almost and wouldn't one Russian source said that Victoria was like tugging away from Valentina, like wouldn't leave where she was standing, um, which is kind of terrifying. And Dennis, who was 19, he hid behind a rock, like totally just paralysed by what he was seeing. And Valentina stood and watched this play out. She'd seemingly just watched, like, at least three at this point friends die within like two minutes. And then as she kind of turned to run, both Victoria and Timur, the 16 and 15 year olds, both who had started to run with her, collapsed and they died in almost the same way. They were throwing up blood, according to Valentina, and clawing at their throats like they couldn't get air. And they were tearing their clothes off, which actually ties in later with how the search and rescue will see some of them. And as you will know, because we've talked about hypothermia on quite a lot of episodes, including Everest, it's one of the symptoms of hypothermia, um, kind of inability to not only breathe, but feeling like you're overheating. And if you're that freezing cold, um, because it's been raining and snowing, it's not something if you were in good condition, you would naturally do. So Valentina, Dennis is hiding behind the rock and Valentina like grabs him, and they hurry away from this site, and they were running kind of down the mountain as fast as they could with all their stuff and Dennis suddenly falls and he starts convulsing on the ground and Valentina knows how this is going to play out, so she just runs and in, into the tree line, which is kilometers away, and she only has a sleeping bag with her. The tents are with i believe um Sasha who's further up the mountain but all she knew was that she had to get away from whatever was happening which I totally understand like because she she's like it's either she said later in her police report it was kind of like group madness but also it could be going through her head that they've all been poisoned or it's something contagious she's only 17 so she only had the clothes on her back and a sleeping bag which was super thin and really not good on its own and Essentially, she ran for her life down the mountain with the pack and eventually she makes it to this tree cover and she sleeps in a sleeping bag completely exposed for the night. Luckily, I believe snow kind of let up and and the rain, which I think probably saved her ultimately. And she had no food with her, no supplies, no extra stuff to keep warm. Um, And she just knew when she woke up the next day that she had to go back up you know, the few kilometres back to seemingly where all her hiking mates were dead in order to get some supplies that she would need to survive and to take them from the bodies of these people, from their bags. So according to Medium, um, essentially she she followed, she went up and she got the supplies, Um, you know, that she needed and everyone was in the same position that they were kind of the day before exactly what she said. Now, now, once she had her things, she kind of decided, well, I'm not continuing my hiking trip. I have to get help. But she wasn't really oriented to where she was. And when you look at maps of this, where she was found versus where they started out, she was heading in the complete opposite direction. So um, you would think she would head back towards the town of Murino where they started. But when you look at maps, it's it's like Murino's north and due north and she's gone due south. Um, and she's actually heading like into kind of thicker brush almost. And so her thinking was that because there was no running water in the area that she could find, there were power lines and she followed them hoping that they would lead her to civilization. And according to my Russian source, she actually made it to what she thought was like a couple of houses, but it was completely abandoned site. And, you know, you can imagine like the just complete sheer disappointment, So she then luckily found a river and she followed this, which is always, you know, the wise thing to do. She knew enough to do that. And she essentially did this for four days. And she said later, you know, in the police report, she figured she was going to die. And that day that the kayakers found her on August 10th, 1993, on the riverbank, she'd been washing her hair because she said she was so rank and she'd been, you know, so dirty and everything. She said, if I'm going to die, I may as well have clean hair, which I mean, you won't without shampoo and conditioner, but um, I know what she means. I'd be thinking the same thing, and so luckily that's when those kayakers went past. Now the thing about her having blood on her, like that's not mentioned in any Russian sources. That seems to be something that's just been handed around through podcasters who use other podcasters' sources, which is a major issue. Um, and I believe that it was probably just scratches and things from walking through like thick brush. And that's kind of what they're referring to because we're also dealing with a breakdown of communication where a lot of the Russian sources, when they're translated into English, make little to no sense. You have to kind of mentally piece it together. Um, So they then took it to the police and this is all as a result of the police report, what we know. But it wasn't for two weeks that police would go out and search for this group because it actually took Lyudmila like three days to actually be able to tell them fully what had happened because she was in shock. She was in so much shock. And then they had to wait for conditions to clear because I read in a Russian source that a cyclone had actually like hit in one of the towns at the base of the mountains. It's really treacherous for weather changing really quickly. But actually I read in my Russian source, which is never mentioned anywhere else, that The reason that they found the bodies wasn't because they were out actively looking for them. They were actually looking for, I said that there was Ludmila's group, then her daughter Natalia's hiking group, and then there was a third group. Now, there's little out there about them, but in this Russian source, and I believe on the of Pass official website, it essentially said from the search and rescue report that two of those people from a group of about seven from the third group that never crossed paths with the other two. They had gone off wandering around, checking out where they were camping, and they hadn't returned. And so their group had gone to raise the alarm, and they were out looking for them, the search and rescue group. When they actually came across, um, what happened to Lude Miller's group, and so they didn't actually like find them for till I think August twenty fourth or twenty fifth. Um, and obviously they were all dead by now. It's been, you know, um, two weeks since since Valentina was found and they all died seemingly five days before that. And the way that they were found all matched Valentina's story. But one thing that's not mentioned in any English speaking sources, but my Russian source, which thankfully was in English, um, that aforementioned online magazine or news thing, I couldn't really make out what it was. says something really interesting about the search and rescue group, because it was actually headed up by kind of this local tough guy who was kind of you know the Arnold Schwarzenegger of search and rescue in the Kmart de Daban mountain range, <laughs> which is a thing. But they wrote this about the search and rescue from the reports: "Quote the helicopter descended and everyone on board witnessed a terrible sight. The picture was terrible. The bodies were already swollen. Everyone's eye sockets were completely eaten out. Almost all of the dead were dressed in thin tights, while three were barefoot. The leader lay on top of Alexander." Unquote. Now. Without being gross, like most of you listen to enough true crime to know that usually like you know um predatory animals will predate soft tissues and often they go for the eye eyes first, so that's generally what happens with that and that's what happened with these bodies seemingly um the bodies are, get very swollen you know after death naturally but also depends on the climate that they're kind of in and I don't know what the if it had warmed up again um but it's not boiling hot but it's just the stages of decomposition now about the thin tights that they were wearing another Russian source has this translated really poorly as leotards which I guess is their translation of it it's it's thin tights as in like I believe the tights like long johns that you wear as what we'd call thermals today like under almost like athletic wear because you can see photos of them wearing that but a lot of the time you can wear those things under your hiking things depending on the weather to keep you extra warm and three were barefoot which ties in with what Valentina said about them like taking the shoes off and taking their clothes off and things like that and then the leader lay on top of Alexander which is as I said Ludmilla collapsed on top of Alexander as she was trying to render him assistance so I guess what are you thinking before we go further Ebola bleeding from the eyes, rabies, acting wild and smashing your head kind of into a rock, which if you ever see anyone who's had rabies, that's not totally um, off. It's not completely a stereotype. Um, poisoning, a nerve agent, like we talked about on the Navalny episodes, like Novichok or any kind of nerve agent. Russia is pretty into those. Um, a Chernobyl-esque local nuclear explosion or maybe even mass psychosis or a result of hypothermia or something they ate. And then you've got to think, well, how did Valentina walk away unscathed as everyone just kind of dropped around her? And this is why there's so many different theories about this. Now, the autopsies, when the bodies were autopsies, these autopsied, these autopsies would further complicate and make confound the situation You would think that I would say that there was some sort of poisoning found in the autopsies. Well, there wasn't. The autopsy reports concluded that all of them had died except for Ludmila. all of the younger lot, the five younger ones, had died from hypothermia and that was the cause of death. And then they said Ludmila was the exception. She'd actually died of a heart attack on the spot as she rendered assistance to Sasha. Their lungs seem to be bruised, which kind of ties in with Valentina's accounts of them gasping for air. And when the coroner wrote down what was most likely the contributing factor to their deaths, they actually wrote down that it was most likely malnutrition caused by protein deficiency, which may sound crazy, but. I actually was reading about this recently, not even related to this. Um, It was related to something else I was writing for work. But do you remember, especially in the 90s and 2000s, they would have the World Vision ads or charity ads of the starving children in Africa, you know. That was kind of the hot-button topic for the Western world at the time and they'd show their big swollen bellies, you know. Now, that's actually got a proper medical name. It's like cash. It's a really strange word. But that is actually caused by protein deficiency in those children. The big swollen bellies, because you wonder, well, why are they so swollen? If um, it's about protein. You know, shouldn't shouldn't you be concave like your insides? But that's not true. It's like complete lack of protein. So when I read that the coroner in this instance put it down to malnutrition caused by protein that suddenly tied in for me, like clicked in my head. Maybe that's why they were so swollen. And if you read about the effects of a complete protein deficiency on the body, it's crazy, but that's actually kind of what happens. And ultimately the coroner would rule all of their deaths to be quote-unquote accidental. So basically their thing was Ludmilla did not pack enough on this trip to... Replace the fuel that they were losing from being wet and hiking and everything like that. And there was not enough, there was too much output, not enough input, plus no protein. Now, I don't know exactly what they were eating, but it does seem crazy to me that you'd be able to die of a protein deficiency that caused hypothermia within three days of leaving for a hike. People survive for much longer than that. And that doesn't make a whole lot of sense to me. These children with these swollen bellies, that's from a long time of malnutrition. But then you've got to take into consideration the effects of being constantly wet. But it was only like two days and people survive a lot longer than that in similar conditions. So that's why a lot of people don't believe this coroner's report. Um, and it's very... It doesn't take into account a lot of things that Valentina said, and that's why a lot of people have issues with it, like bleeding from the nose and the seizures and all of that. There's a lot of things that don't, and how it happened one after the other after the other, you would think that they wouldn't all just drop suddenly, which is my major issue, if it was hypothermia, it'd be one and then maybe a few hours later and then one the next day, it wouldn't be one, 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 one. So, that makes no sense to me. Now, the autopsy is weird to me and I kept reminding myself, take this with a grain of salt, it's not 1993, it's Russia and I honestly question these days whether even autopsies, you know, are right when I'm looking at things like this and when I take into consideration the fact that it's a country like Russia Sometimes I have to throw out mentally and, you know, the fact that it's even real. Like how do we know that the medical examiner was not ordered by some higher-ups just to put it off as something like that when in fact it was a nerve agent or something like that? But say it's right. Hypothermia to me means that either they were already in a complete state of hypothermia when they died and that this was kind of the last thing that Valentina saw act itself out? Or were they still alive, but kind of just seemed dead when Valentina left them? I, I, I'm just not sure. Even though it was summer, a journalist who would later kind of retrace these steps five years later at the exact same time, five years to the day, and I'll talk about him in a minute, he would say that it would not surprise him at all, the fact that it was hypothermia, because of what they were forced to put out versus what they weren't taking in, not a whole amount of fuel. And a lot of people just kind of take that on face value and say, Ludmila, as much as she was a master hiker, she made a lot of really dodgy decisions. And if if a number of them are true, I do question her ability to think straight, like, because she made some really strange decisions, hiking in that open kind of space, which even expert hikers, you know, they would say that's a really strange choice. Um, there was a lot of, there was a lot of strangeness and maybe she was already in the effects of hypothermia, but does hypothermia cause these instantaneous one after the other bleeding orifices, seizures, insane behavior? Yes, it can cause all of those symptoms. I'm not entirely sure about nosebleeds and things. But a lot of what uh, Valentina saw act itself out does tie in with hypothermia, if you remember, tugging at their clothes and things like that. But then you've got to think that Ludmila had a heart attack and she seemed to die instantly over Sasha, which kind of indicates to me that the coroner's report could be correct because she's the oldest by a fair bit and she's more likely to have a heart attack than someone who's 15, for instance. So I find that really interesting and compelling, people can have heart attacks from shock, and maybe it was the shock of what she was witnessing. But then again, this is like a hardened Kazakh woman who like hikes in the mountains for a living. I don't think she's going to succumb to shock killing her. So and also if the autopsies were a lie, the other thought I had was that you'd think that the coroner would just mark them all as having the same cause of death, whereas they put Lude Miller as having a heart attack. Um, so that's very interesting. She didn't die of hypothermia, but I want to remind you, hypothermia often brings on a heart attack, like it's often one of the final stages of it, and she's going to be more at risk of the heart attack finality of it than someone who's more than half her age or, you know, a third of her age. So I'm going to get into all of that in part two for theories. This case received little to no media attention in Russia, a little bit in nearby Kazakhstan, but compared to the Dyatlov Pass and how much people talk about that, it still really doesn't. Now, just to refresh you, because I, I feel like these are important because coming across this, something crazy happened where I just thought, okay, well, it's this and the Dyatlov Pass that are quite similar and both happen in Russia. Granted, a long way away from each other in Russia. I'd found out researching this, Russia takes up 11% of the world's like land mass so just to say in Russia is a bit of a stretch because it's fucking huge but I found another case which is similar to these two as well that I've never heard of so just to kind of wrap up this part one with telling you about these two cases really briefly I'm sure most of you have heard about the of Pass Everybody and their dog has covered it. In 1959, a group of nine hikers all experienced way more than this group went on a, a skiing trip into the Ural Mountains in another part of Russia. They never came back and no one survived to tell the tale of what happened. So to this day, we don't know. Ultimately, a search party would find the group dead in a crazy way, body parts missing, looks like the chests were, like, crushed in, internal bleeding, head trauma. It looked like one of them had done similar to one of them in the Kamar de Ban group where they'd been smashing their head against a tree, which also ties in with that. Um, ultimately, like, it was put down to hypothermia, same thing. Um, the camp, though, had been damaged, which is what makes the of Pass case very different to the Kamar de Ban case, for instance. It looked like what had happened to the Dyatlov Pass group had happened while they were in their tents warm as opposed to freezing cold like the other group and that whatever had happened had propelled them out of their tents to the point where they actually cut their tents from the inside to get out, which means that, like, kind of you weren't using the door. There was a reason that you couldn't. Um, And the group was spread out across, like, this expanse of snow a lot of them were in various states of undress, which is happens with hypothermia. I definitely suggest looking into it. They found a number of the bodies, then they had to wait for the snow to thaw, and a number of them weren't found for months. It looked like a bunch of them had buried under the snow, potentially to keep warm, like to create like kind of an ice pocket. Um, and there's a lot of theories about that, which really go into a lot, of, a lot more rushes up to something sus, that realm because nearby hikers saw these orange spheres in the sky and people think that there was some sort of nuclear leak or kind of gas leak that the Russians were doing something crazy out there because they did have sites where they would do testing out in the Ural Mountains. Um, some people think it was an avalanche that caused the death. Some people think it was mass psychosis But then I found another one that happened in 1973. Very little details of this at all, most of it in Russian. All I know is that this was a group of 10 ski hikers in a completely other area of Russia. It's called the Chivroy Pass incident. Happened over two days in 1973. Um, This was a group, a trekking group from an institute. They were all adults who were all found dead um, in an area called the Chivroy Pass. This is all from that dot Um, And they were found very similar to the kmart Duban incident and they were all ruled as hypothermia as well. So after this Kmart-Daban incident, a local journalist called Vladimir Zarov he took an interest in this case and he would track down Valentina and she... Um, the the shocking detail says this was decades later it it wasn't because I've seen like the news articles it was like the following year um seemingly because there's pictures of him um from like 1993 like doing investigation into this he took an interest in the case and he tracked down Valentina she spoke to him and told him essentially the same story as what she told the police Um, But she did tell him another piece of information which will lead into theories as well. And this was in the police report. I was just holding it back for you guys. She said that the night before, um, you know, and into the morning of August 5th before the shit hit the fan big time and everything that happened happened, the group had been collecting and drying a plant called golden root on the pass all day long. Kind of as they were walking they would collect this plant. And this is a plant that grows naturally in Arctic regions of Europe. Um, it's, it's used in culinary purposes. I looked it up. It's used in traditional medicine as well. You know, big farmer poo-poos it, blah, 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 yada, yada, which probably means it has some sort of, it works well or something. That's generally what I have found through my own kind of stuff. Um, and, You can eat it raw or cooked and it's popular in kind of these traditional medicine tinctures um, that they make and apparently they were doing that. Now whether or not it can poison you is kind of open for debate because I read that you can eat it raw or cooked Um, but they were kind of, it was wet so they were kind of drying it out Um, and a lot of people theorise that this golden root which I'll list in part two in theories um, could have done something to all of them, uh, which is something that, you know, I guess you got to take into account. Now I can't remember um if they said that. I believe that all of them had eaten some. Um, in fact, I believe that it was Valentina had eaten some as well, which kind of rules it out to me, and that it was actually Ludmila who hadn't. Um, so I I kind of throw that out almost immediately when I heard that on the shocking details. I remember thinking, uh, I don't think it. I don't think it's to do with that um, because it was just bang, bang, bang. So, Vladimir um, Zarov, this journalist, five years to the day of the Kamad incident, would do the exact same trek to get a feel for what it's like in August. Um, he, he trekked the exact route the group trekked, went to exactly where everything went down, and then he did the exact same trek back the way that Valentina said down to the river where she was ultimately found. And um, essentially he walked away and I'm not going to tell you what he thinks happened. <laughs> I'm going to tell you on part two, he would put together what he decided he believed happened. And I found that in Russian sources that in the end, he just says, I believe it, it was this. Um, so one thing I want to add before I wrap up part one is that my Russian source had um, they quoted the search and rescue guy, a guy called Leonid Ismailov, and he found something very strange when they found the bodies that I want to wrap up on, because I've never seen it said it anywhere else, and it really kind of changed things for me a lot. So he said that when they found the bodies and they had all their packs and everything on them, he found it strange that They had spent two whole days essentially being lashed with rain and snow and being freezing and soaked through. And he said he found it strange that they did not seem to have tried to warm up at all. Granted, they couldn't make a fire, but. And I don't know if this is translated from Russian, I believe so, so I'm trying to kind of read between the lines, but the sentence that he wrote uh, in this article, quoting this Leonid guy was, quote, each of them had a sleeping bag and plastic wrap and it remained intact. Everything was dry and lay in backpacks, unquote. So what I read into that, they've got the sleeping bag, but they also had the plastic kind of tarps that you can often make a shelter with. What I read into that is that he's saying that the night before everything went down, when they were forced to camp on that open kind of barren part and, you know, they're already all soaked, it seemed that they hadn't even got their sleeping bags out to camp because their sleeping bags were all dry and in their backpacks. And if they had been out in the rain the night before, when the rain had hit, they would still be wet but everything was dry. Like it hadn't been used since the night before. So to this leaned eat guy, it seemed that to him, they had just been sitting there potentially in their tents or just op- in the open without even trying to warm up almost like in a stupor, which makes you think that they were going deep into hypothermia, um, at that point in time. But that's where I'm going to leave it for part one. Part two, I'll be back in a few days. Um, with, you know, don't contact me saying, you know, what you think yet or whatever, because it will probably be in part two. Um, I'll be back in a few days to wrap up and that will all be the different theories that people think, you know, from government, you know, conspiracy to, um, aliens, (laughs) to poisoning, to, you know, hypothermia, uh, to mass psychosis, um yeah so i will be back i hope you have a good weekend and i will talk to you then bye